Happy New Year, listeners, and welcome to another episode of What the Plus F, where we break down the complexity of ESG and meet those who have mastered unlocking value from ESG data. I'm your host, Oliver Barnes, and in today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Daniel Clear. Daniel is the CEO of ESG Book, a global leader in ESG data and technology. Prior to ESG Book, Daniel was a partner at McKinsey, global head of sustainable finance at HSBC, chair of the Bank of England Climate Risk Working Group, and chair of the Sustainable Finance Working Group at the Institute of International Finance. I think it's fair to say that you'd be pushed to find someone with more first-hand experience on how financial institutions are using data to understand ESG and climate risks. Um, so hi, Daniel, and um, welcome to uh, What the Plus F. Hi, Ollie. Lovely to see you, and uh, thank you for having me on. Yeah, great. No, really good to be here. And obviously, uh, we're, we're, we're here in Australia, but you're, you're calling in from London, I think, today. London it is, uh, on a rare sunny day. <laughs> great. Well, long, long way at last. Um, so, you know, Daniel, Indeed. as I understand, you, you started your backgrounds, you're, you're an economist, um, and, yep. uh, and then, you know, ventured through um, consulting into banking. Is that correct? That's exactly it. Um, I was a partner at McKinsey, and uh, when you work for large uh, banks and large private equity firms, the, the natural next job is you run strategy for one of the large banks. So I, I, from, from McKinsey, I went on to, to lead strategy for, for HSBC, which obviously was a phenomenal experience because there isn't a bank probably more exposed to what's happening in the world, right? Every political frontier, every societal frontier matters to you because the bank is so global and has pretty much businesses in every customer segment. You learn about what, what's happening around you. No, incredible. So, I mean, I guess that leads to the question, what's a, what's a banker doing in the ESG? Yeah, it, it really came out of this, this work. So I had a brilliant um, boss who, who, was, who was running the, the bank, Stuart Gulliver at the time, and he was, I think he's an old FX trader, right? So while, while he's quite transactional in many ways, he also is interested in super long-term trends. And so he asked me that innocent question, how will the world look like in 2050? Well, that that is a fair question to ask. Um, you can run a lot of big McKinsey-like Excel models and then create a lot of PowerPoints out of it. But it became very quickly, very clear. If you think about where the majority of capital will be deployed over the next few decades, it's three trends. It's Asia growing up, right? Asia becoming the largest economy of the world. Um, China obviously playing a very important part of that. But Asia overall, um, I think, really uh, punching its weight and building infrastructure and, um, and growing up, right? Um, uh, average wealth going up, household income, consumption. So if you're a bank, that matters. The second topic was the digitization of the economy, right? We, we, we're in a massive industrial revolution, and that will need trillions to, to, to fully achieve. And the third big trend was the decarbonization of the economy. So that next industrial revolution, if we think about digitization as the current one, the next one is the decarbonization of the economy. Every sector will have to go through it. Trillions of capital will have to be spent. And so if you're large financial institutions, those are the three big trends that you have to align yourself to because that's where capital will go. And so Asia with HSBC was quite well covered. The technology part was quite well covered. But sustainability at that time was still a little bit so CSI was what can I do? What good things can I do with working with charities and making donations, which is all great, obviously. But when you sit on a $2.7 trillion balance sheet, there's much more you can do by leaning into the business. And so I raised my hand and said, I want to build HSBC sustainable finance business. That was 2017. That was still quite novel, not, not many of the, the large institutions had anything like this. And so it was fantastic to be almost an entrepreneur within a very large organization to build out this, this, this franchise. Very interesting, very interesting. So it wasn't, it wasn't a um, childhood dream to end up in this space, but... Um, you no, know, I mean, it's certainly, I think it's certainly, and I've, I've, I think everybody that works in our space realizes that the, the ability to do something good 
is is fantastic because there are very few things and very few areas of our world where you can do good and do well, right? I mean, grow a business, build a business, and have impact. And I think that that's quite unique. And I think it's important that that we all sort of recognize that and remind ourselves that yes, we're 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 building commercial businesses. You are, I am. Back in the days when 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 I when I was at the bank, there was a commercial mantra behind it. But there's a much bigger purpose why are we doing this? I think we, we we see where the world is going, and we need, in our case, need to need to give the world the right signals to allocate. If you're a bank, you need to provide the capital, and that has been quite quite unique. I always said, with my job, I can almost appeal to three different brains. There's the very commercial brain, people that want to build businesses. There's the the risk averse brain, right? In, in in our space, there are a lot of people that are worried about regulation, about risk, especially when you work in large financial institutions. And so that was sort of the second angle you could take. If people didn't believe in the opportunity, you could get to them via the risk. But the most powerful one is is purpose. Um, yeah. Everybody has children. Everybody has a, a view of of the responsibility as a, as a leader. And I think that has been incredibly powerful to appeal to those different sort of emotions in a in a, in, a, in a human it's kind of interesting what you raise there because if, if you talk i mean you know like like you spending time in the capital markets and you talk about real generational um i guess um, wealth creation they talk about the effect of compounding over long yeah. periods of time and you know, business continuity and um you know, we're now suddenly finding a, a world we're in with us, you know, geopolitically is about as unstable as I've known it in my in my lifetime. And I know there's been periods that come and go. Um, but you've also got, you know, markets, financial markets changing, you've got conversations around climate and you know, being a, a now considered a material financial risk. Yeah. Um, something uh, that you know, I guess And I think uh, the problem the problem that we have here is is purely horizons, right? It's I, I don't think many people that we interact with or even people that we don't interact with that maybe a little bit further away from what we now call sustainable finance would disagree with the move to a more sustainable economy at addressing climate change as being important, right? Most people would, would subscribe to that. I think the importance is, is, is agreed. The, the urgency is the problem, right? So it's the... Mm -hmm. uh, do you do something now or is it maybe the next management generation's problem? And I think especially at the moment where most of the world have made these wonderful 2050 targets, now everybody is, oh no, <laughs> actually, I have to change my behavior now. It's not a 2030, not a 2040 topic. It's mm. in this decade, we need to reduce emissions by, by almost 50%. And I think that's the interesting piece that we're now confronting. Like, how do you how do you actually translate a very long-term ambition into something that is achievable today? Mm. And there's so much coming at um, the different stakeholder groups, including the capital markets. It's, it's not just climate now. It's you know talking about biodiversity, and there just seems to be effectively an, you know uh, such a myriad of um, risks that we're now um, starting to understand the science, I guess, behind. And, and once you start to yeah. quantify it, or once you see something, it's, it's pretty hard to unsee. Oh, completely. Um, but I think there's also another lens to this. Good investors for centuries, at least for decades, have been looking at non-financial risks, right? And non-financial performance. We now call it ESG and we call it sustainability. And then I did the beginning of this of this conversation very quickly went down the climate climate route, um, but for many many investors looking at how a company how a country but let's let's focus on companies how a company performs on non financial metrics has always been important right the quality of governance how you treat your employees how you treat your customers mm. how you treat in this case the, the planet. That has always been on the agenda. We, we now formalize it. We're now formalizing a bit more um, how to measure it, how to assess it. But I think that this, this isn't a completely new new concept. It is the evolution of of good investing. Yeah, that, that, I think that's really that's a really um, point well made. I mean, one of the things that we you know keeping keeping 
to the sort of foundational parts of our industry and you, we have this word ESG now that that sort of, I guess, uh, emerged in prominence and probably over your time, you know, since 2017, it's risen to the top. Yeah. It's, it's just a very poorly defined word, or it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I guess, you know, what, what, what can you say or how can you provide your interpretation around ESG um, for a listener out there, particularly those that may consider the term ESG, you know, wokeness gone mad? Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a super important point because ESG became synonymous for everything that isn't financial. And to, to, to a degree, that's what it is, right? It is the non-financial performance of a company. I think it's important to think about every company has a P&L and a balance sheet, and that reflects how well it's performing on the, on the numerical side. But every company also has an environmental, a social, and a governance performance. And while all of that sometimes sounds a bit, bit let's call it weak and woolly, it is all measurable, right? How, how does a company deal with environmental resources? How does a company deal with social matters and social is your, your stakeholder groups that are customers, communities, and obviously your employees? And then it's a question on governance, data ethics, cyber. And why, why should companies care about this? It's not just because we now think this is a really important topic for the planet. It is because there is enough evidence that companies that care about the non-financial performance of a firm perform better in the long term. Right? It is avoiding risks, avoiding things that come your way because you don't govern well, that often are fraud problems, compliance problems. It's, it's how you treat the social side of your business. With that, you keep employees for longer, you motivate them better, you don't have customers walking away because they think you're, you're misusing their data and, and things like that. And certainly on the environmental side, I think we all know that we're going through a massive change. And if you, if you don't respond to the resource environment around you, that could be the price of energy, the availability of water. All of that will hit your business in the long term. So I, I think it's important that we translate something that sometimes feels a bit, let's call it soft, into the core of the business. Um, how does it affect your P&L and your balance sheet in the, in the long run? And all of this will, but it needs a little bit more work because it will not happen in the next quarter, most likely not but it will happen over the cycle of at least a board normally, um, a management team or two. And that's really, I think, what we're trying to do with the, with the term E, S, and G. No, I, I, I think it's great. It, you know, for, for us here at ESG Plus F, the, the whole business was launched on the back of, you know, our, our own frustrations in quantifying ESG. So rather than, you know, we'd like to sort the jazz hands or, or saying, you know, the environmental or social things in very loose conversations, we really sort of recognize the need that, you know, to, to be able to quantify that, put structure, measure, and then you can bring the conversations across, you know, investors, stakeholders, boardrooms, execs, yeah. and then you can really sort of measure and, and help move that forward. And I guess, you know, we've been now as a company um, working with ESG book for, um, pretty much early on, uh, and, yeah. you know, it's, it's, a, it's been a, it's been a great relationship, but I think one of the foundations to this relationship was, um, uh, ESG books been on its journey to find and understand the common language that, that provides that insight. We, you know, that we're, we're completely driven by that mission and bringing that DNA into the clients, um, and into their thinking and their decision-making that's, that's going on behind the closed doors, you know, yeah. not the external, but the internal aspects before it, it ends up being external um you know I, I think one of the things that we absolutely aligned on our thinking is you know you, you talked about the measurement of these non-financial uh, factors that are influencing these businesses and bringing those into a set of non-financial accounts obviously it's taken i guess an industry to evolve taxonomy to be able to do that and, and you know effectively what we we consider systematic and a structured yeah. approach of those factors and how they interact can, can you sort of elaborate a bit on the journey and where that taxonomy's landed and, and i guess one of the things that i think our listeners are keen to hear is 
you know, are we in our stage of harmonization across taxonomy? And, and is that, yeah. you know, you know, is the US, Europe, um, and particularly now as Australia sort of moves into this, this, this realm, are we all talking common language now? No, I think it's a super important question. And as with every standard, um, I think you go through three or four stages. The, the first one is you have hardly anything that is sort of official. And individual companies that are leaders in the space are starting to create their own standard. So you have leaders in most of the big verticals, the fashion industry, obviously the energy industry, but across every sector coming up with what they think is a fair account of how they treat their stakeholder groups. That was sort of the early days of sustainability reporting. And that started to lift the bar a little bit. Investors started to realize that there are actually companies that think differently, often companies that actually performed really well. And so you started to get a little bit of attention to the topic. The second stage was then quite a proliferation of standards, right? You suddenly had a number of often non-government backed standards emerging. Um, NGOs that came together and said, we're now the, the sustainability accounting framework. Uh, we are now the, the global reporting initiative. Obviously, there was something called TCFD that emerged. There was, there was um, sponsored by actually the regulatory bodies, but was then an initiative by, by Mark Carney and Michael Bloomberg that set the standard for how uh, climate reporting should happen. But I think you ended up in a world where you had probably, I mean, we track more than 2,500 global sustainability standards, but you had 10 to 15 big ones that started to almost compete a little bit. That was good because it created momentum. Each of these standards had sort of a coalition behind it, 400 companies here, 1,000 companies there. And I, I would always think about it as it built muscle. Companies had to create the internal structures, get boards comfortable with reporting. And that was sort of stage two. I think we're now in stage three where the world realizes if you continue with the proliferation of standards, everybody will just get pissed off because <laughs> you said at the beginning, I'm, I'm an economist, right? The, the only thing that moves an economy is a consistent set of signals. And if you send signals that are not comparable, you can't allocate capital, you can't allocate resources properly, and you will not achieve what you want to achieve. And so I think that the stage we're in right now is we're not yet at one single standard. That's why I said at the beginning, three to four phases, but we start to have a few standards emerging. Um, there certainly is ISSB, which is the International uh, Sustainability um, um, Standards Board. So they essentially are what IFRS is, they're sponsored actually by the IFRS Foundation, and they are becoming the international standard of what ESNG reporting is meant to be. And then there is TCFD, which is the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, which is really becoming the standard how companies should think about the, the C vertical within E, so to say, right? How do you go deeper on, on measuring climate impacts? And I think what's really, really important especially when you think about TCFD, um, what the initiative tried to do is translate climate impacts into financial metrics, right? All of these initiatives are trying to build the bridge between non-financial and financial reporting. And maybe there's a, there's a phase four where you actually land on one single standard. I think we're a little bit away from that, but we have sort of the two, three, four global standards emerging that are starting to dominate how people think about it. And what we then do as, as ESG Book, we build a common data language across all of this. So we, we cover about 480 ESGs or non-financial metrics that sit across all of these frameworks so you can actually make companies comparable. And I think that's where our relationship comes in, Oli. Um, how do you create some consistency across all of that noise and how do you make it measurable? How do you help companies to communicate to their stakeholder groups? Um, but I think we've come a long way I mean, over, over a very short period of time where really there was no standard to now two or three of the, of the global emerging sort of what I would call the emerging baseline. I think that's, 
that that's such an important inflection point from you know us and what we do you know esg plus f works in-house as an extension of our clients provide them that that um i guess the, the data infrastructure to be able to bring that information um forward do the do the data processing um but really the important thing is you're taking lots of unstructured information and you're putting structure around that it's such an such an exciting inflection point having invested in the process to build yeah. yourself a set of non-financial data i think the, the, the question then quickly becomes how how can we use this how can we how can we put this to work um and so obviously finding um the ability to to generate not only i guess continuous business improvement in those organizations but you know finding opportunities that could be you know um influencing the cost of insurance or insurance premiums you know and um you you, met, you talked about you know employee and um stakeholder um i i guess for us alignment behind the company so that it's not fragmented thinking or thoughts yeah. or or um uh, going on within the organizational behavior but you know there really is it's, it's a very exciting point in time um what we really like and what we really enjoy about esg book is and again it subscribes to that uh, understanding that structure that taxonomy but you know, what happens when the data then ends up in a disclosed format in esg book you know there's we often talk about with our clients what's the last mile you know we, we've yeah. moved absolutely moved on from this annual reporting cycle where you know you may do a you know a, a sustainability report I often talk about i don't see a long future for sustainability reports as the primary disclosure mechanism um because this is such a continuous disclosure environment and you're wanting that data to be responsive to the things that are coming at the business um, absolutely one of the things we really love about esg book and maybe you can expand on that is the um, i guess the distribution of data um you know you, you talked about i guess we call it you know universal coverage um but then the distribution of data can you can you talk about um that in a bit more detail yeah perfect M maybe two words about esg book so we are one of the largest uh, actually the largest independent esg and climate data provider in the world we run a platform with more than ten thousand users on it um and what we what do we do we connect investors with companies and we create in the middle a highly consistent transparable a trans transparent comparable and accessible data set because what's the big complaint of the world is that at the moment i can't compare any of these reports they're highly inconsistent they're normally in lovely pdfs sitting on companies websites as you said or, or said ollie they're created once a year um with with quite outdated information and so what do we do we 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 connect investors directly with companies. Uh, we cover about 40,000 companies worldwide. And we help investors do three things, right? So we have a very large data set and we help investors either understand the risk return profile that they can generate based on the ESG information that we provide. So I think many of our clients think about ESG as a mechanism to improve the risk return profile of their portfolios. And that means finding companies that are likely to be the better financial performers because there is an, a correlation between good non-financial performance and financial performance or and more commonly avoid major risks avoid major environmental social and governance risks in their portfolio and for that you need data because data is a very good predictors of companies that will most likely run into issues mm. the, the second thing that investors do with this data is they look for alignment of their portfolios with certain views of the world. Climate, probably the most um, 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 discussed and most used. If you believe in a world that is aligned with one and a half degrees, so a net zero world, you want to find companies that are aligned with that vision because otherwise you run the risk of what we call stranded assets transition risks, right? Because some companies and some industries that you invested in may no longer have a long-term financial viability. And frankly, the third one, and probably at the moment, one of the most discussed ones is just compliance with regulation. Because what does regulation do at the moment? It encourages slash forces companies to disclose more information, but it also encourages slash forces investors to integrate non-financial metrics into their um, reporting, into their compliance work, so if you need to report on certain things, you need to ask your companies, 
hey, what's your SFDR profile, which is the, the European Sustainable Finance Directive? What's your ISSB profile? Because I need this information just to be able to, to operate. And so if, if we are the, the bridge between the investor world and the company world, and you are the essentially translation mechanism into the companies inside, there are more and more signals I think coming from the investor world towards the company saying, I need better, more consistent, more up-to-date ESG information to be able to still invest in you. And suddenly it's no longer a topic of, of communication and marketing. It's a question of access to capital. And that means that matters for every company. The cost of access to capital is, is nothing that you either believe in or not. It is essential for the long-term viability of your, of your company. Absolutely. You know, a lot of people that are early on the ESG, they go, oh, is ESG going to influence the cost of capital? And we often say, first, first and foremost, it's work on access and then competition effectively drives cost. Um, but, um, you know, we, we, we're sort of, you know, I think we're seeing a convergence, particularly with, let's just pick on, you know, sustainability linked bonds and the pricing, but really we're seeing a convergence where as risks are understood, this is becoming uh, business as usual or effectively part of the investment or the, the credit risk processes. Yeah. Um, is, that, is that your experience? So you're sitting up there in London, I know you spend a bit of time in the US and you travel quite a bit um, from a, wearing a bank, banker's hat as well. Is yeah. that how your sort of colleagues, your former colleagues and the, and the, and the, the world that you, you, you work in um, is thinking? So Europe is probably a few years ahead on this. Um, both, I think, what investors believe is important. And I would say we, we, have, we have very little of the, let's call it more controversial debate that you have in other parts of the world, especially in the US, where there is this, is, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Almost like we have, we have political lines colliding. I think in Europe, there's general consensus that if you are a good investor, you look at non-financial performance because it matters. Um, it matters for your long-term um, uh, portfolio performance alignment with major trends. But the other thing where Europe is probably a, f a few years still ahead is, is regulatory intervention. Because I think the, the, the European Commission in particular realized that there are a number of institutions that are already quite far advanced on this and are leading, but there are a lot of people that are essentially waiting to see what the what the what the baseline is going to be and i think that's where where europe certainly has has moved um and quite interestingly is one of the few areas where europe is now i think exporting their regulatory proposals to other parts of the world i mean if you think about the eu taxonomy the eu taxonomy is a framework that that essentially assesses what parts of the economic activity in the world is aligned with a net zero economy um you can criticize it, or at least somebody has done the work on about 400 pages to define what is, um, what is green. And yeah. you now see this being adopted around the world because people are looking for standards, right? Everybody, nobody can operate well in complete uncertainty. And that the same is true on broader ESG issues. Um, you and I sometimes think this is the most important topic in the world. If you're in the boardroom, this is one of many topics on the agenda and all the board and the CFO, the CEO wants clarity, right? What, what is the baseline? What am I measuring? Um, and then they want to get on with their, with their jobs. And I think we're now at the place where we can provide this. That's why we love working with you because we <laughs> built that connective tissue between what investors think is mm. important and how companies should actually deliver it. Yeah. We often use the analogy and I'm particularly with my, when we're training our analysts and you say you've got a, you've got three audiences inside the organization you've got a, a three minute uh, a 30 minute and a three hour and you know mm. in three minutes your chairman is on the phone busy they need oversight but they need to know what matters and when and being able to respond to that immediately without you know taking them down down the deep rabbit hole um on this but obviously organizations where they start to see or they benchmark or they start to see yeah. potentially a lag, they're going to, they're going to want to run deep. And also, I guess from a, a, you know, I guess they're all custodians of their shareholders capital. So, you know, it's important to know how much and what effort do you need to apply to maintain the maturity that you desire as a company 
versus you know effectively going off the end of the the Richter scale and, yeah. and overcapitalizing in areas that just you know it's it's a fine balance too much or too little. Um, no, completely. I like the three thirty and three hours. It's exactly what you mm. need. Mm. Yeah, no, that's good. So the so you know, I guess. We sit in an ecosystem, particularly where we're, we're trying to form a view from an external point of view on companies. Um, you know, we have um, rating agencies as well in that landscape. Can you sort of just, I guess, for the listener, break down the, uh, a difference or the nuances between that and um, what what ratings are doing, uh, what ESG book are doing, and what, and what else you're also seeing out there? Yeah, I think, I think it's a super important question because... The whole ESG movement started, I think, with people trying to remodel what a credit rating does and put it onto an ESG rating. So suddenly ESG ratings emerged which looked like credit rating, right? Your A plus or your three green leaves. Um, but I think people fairly quickly realized there's a big short fall here, shortcoming here. Um, a credit rating has a single purpose, right? A credit rating tells you how likely it is that you will get your money back probability of default. Quite useful, and you can put it into a single number. The problem with ESG ratings is that it is so many different things for so many people. Um, we put 480 different data points in our ESG scores, but what we do is we help people unpack because we don't create ESG ratings with a human analyst writing an assessment of a company. We're giving you a tool that allows you to open up the black box. Right, so if you, if you look at what we call an ESG score and you want to understand what happens, you click on it and you get your ESG. You click on it, you get your 26 SASB dimensions. So those are things like human rights and water and quality of governance. Um, so 26 um, sustainability dimensions. And then you click on it and you get to the actual raw data point. And so when you are a company that is trained in managing financial outcomes, this is much more, much more natural to you because you essentially manage to certain KPIs and how you perform versus the global baseline, how you perform versus your sector, how you perform versus your fiercest competitor. And suddenly you have something that's measurable and therefore manageable. And for me, that's the big difference from what I would call ESG 1.0. Essentially an analyst giving you a, a grading um, once a year after he, he or she interviewed you versus a data-driven solution that allows you to improve the performance of your firm. And that's really where, where we are going. And then the, the second step, I think what, what um, the people that we work with really appreciate is we connect investors then straight with the company. So companies can actually update information whenever something new is coming out. Investors are able to ask companies for specific data points. And so you start to avoid the, the middleman where essentially companies disclose, somebody then collects the information, um, sells it to the investor, and you lose month and month and month and month. So I think it's really, really important to, to, to build that connectivity and make this a much more instantaneous experience. Yeah, I think that's really important, particularly when we talk about continuous disclosure. So, you know, a yeah. company at the moment, you, you have to be of a reasonable size to effectively get the coverage, you know, in a normal rating scenario. And there are a lot of uh, mid-tier and small cap companies that are looking to effectively, you know, I guess the question we get asked by a lot of our clients is, you know, how do we, how do we represent this without us scoring our own homework? Um, yeah. And how do we sort of, show progress to the outside world um uh, but we're, we're too small there's not enough value in our data to then be sold or, or provided to rating agencies so we're we're sitting there on the back burner waiting and yeah. i guess we're not really sure what we need to disclose and how and where to you know effectively put the flag up to say look you know we've got new information when when you know please take that into consideration as part yeah. of our um, disclosure. So I think I think that, I think you raise a massive problem, right? At the moment, there is a a real risk that the way the ESG industry currently works means more capital is going to the companies that already have all the capital, right? So mm -hmm. um, the, a lot of the the ESG products and funds and the like 
at the moment put most of their capital into companies like Microsoft, right? Very developed market, therefore low, low com uh, country risk. A lot of disclosures, so very transparent. A technology sector where nobody has a concern about climate. Um, and then generally, obviously, Microsoft does a very good job on the broader ESG front. But Microsoft is not the company that needs a lot more capital to deliver what they, what they want to deliver. It is um, the smaller companies and actually the companies outside of, of Europe and the US that will need to make the biggest leap. And if you look at the correlation at the moment between size of company and ESG rating, and if you look at the correlation of GDP per capita and ESG rating, there's a very straight line, right? Mm. And so I think doing, doing more work in helping smaller companies um, move into the space and frankly, doing more work to help countries that have been less at the forefront of regulation move into the same space is super, super important. Otherwise, capital will will not reach where it needs to go. One of the exercises we've been doing with um, ESG book data, because obviously when we do benchmarking, we know for our clients where internally their information and where their, I guess, their maturity sits before they've moved that into the public domain. But often they want to look left and right. They want to look at their peers, but importantly so, you know, if they've got a, uh, you know, a particular partner that might be downstream, that might be an off taker, and maybe certain financing arrangements or royalties or, 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 or any other sort of hybrid financing mechanism that they're using. They want to know, you know, where do we currently sit on these um, material areas and where, where does our ecosystem sit and are we lagging yeah. behind? Are we keeping up? Are we effectively managing the expectations well of effectively big brothers that are sitting in and around that are essential to our business? And, yeah, we're finding that data particularly useful. Um, it kind of takes yeah, I mean, all the, the noise hearsay out of the room and just brings it back to a, a really well-visualized piece of information that then you can sort of equip management and boards to, to have discussion on. So. No, I'm glad, glad you find it useful. I think it goes back to the very basic of human nature, right? People are competitive. We, we all are. We like rankings. We like to understand where we are. And it encourages people to, to, to move up. Um, so I think that the peer benchmarking, the understanding where, where the global standard is, is, is super critical. Otherwise, you, you, you operate in a, in a vacuum. Yeah. And I guess the counter to that, particularly this for, for any skeptics that are sort of lis listeners as well, it's perfectly fine to say, look, this is the maturity that we've reached and we're happy with this altitude and we don't think that will impact the business. You're, you're clearly articulating that. You don't yeah. consider it as material and, and therefore, you know, you're not going to overcapitalize in this area. Um, we're finding with um, our clients, especially when they're going on road shows, about, they're saying about 70 to 90% of the first question that they get is, um, what's your approach to ESG, particularly from investors? Yeah. And it's, it's a double-edged sword or a question. You know, they kind of, um, they're asking, do you actually understand this subject matter and are you going to be a good use uh, of our capital, uh, what are you going to do with it? Um, yeah. so I guess if your sort of immediate response is, oh, we believe in environmental sustainability and social things, you've kind of, um, you've, you've, you've already failed. Um, yeah, no, I, I, completely, um, I completely get that. Um, but I think you, you raised one really, really important point for, for, for listeners. I, I speak about 480 different data points. Um, that doesn't mean that all 480 different data points matter for every company, right? So we, we apply um, something called the materiality assessment. We follow the, the SASB logic. Um, and what does that mean? It means that for different industries, different things matter, right? If you run a big mining company, you have a different set of KPIs and topics that matter for you versus when you run a technology company where data ethics may be, may be more important. And so... I think it's important to always understand just reporting for the sake of reporting actually is not the not the, the key here. It is understanding what is material for you and then aligning your internal procedures, your measurements to that. So first of all, it, it will make the whole effort more meaningful, but also it will it will avoid wasting a lot of time with things that actually for your industry, for your business, don't matter that much. And when we talk about materiality, and it's a real foundational piece, especially, you know, moving to double materiality where you're comparing the stakeholder groups and what they think, you know, particularly has an impact on them versus 
your assessment and what impacts your business. Um, again, it's real time, you know, things can come along, things can change. Yeah. Um, and ultimately your materiality around those topics and you, 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 like you, we function materiality around the SASPE general issue categories, the GICs, but they can slide up and down. Um, so the ability to at any point in time to then come back to their ESG book data and say, well, hang on a minute, where, where are our peers, yeah. our, our customers, our um, partners sit on this now as this topic rises up or down, I think is, again, you know, you, what you're trying to do is be responsive, bring it back to a data um, point that can help you start to make decisions as a business. Um, so, so, I mean, we talk a bit about listed companies and obviously listed companies tend to be more mature in their disclosures, they sit in a world um, where they're sort of governed by, I guess, additional layers of regulation and corporate governance. Um, let's talk about maybe private companies. Where, where does this start to interact um, big and small um, with private companies and, you know, who traditionally yeah. just you know, have an internal looking sort of exercise? I think private companies are the, the, the big next frontier. So we spend a lot of our time on private companies because guess what? You also have capital, and your capital providers care. So there are two, two I think, very good examples and good, good, um, good capital providers that that care. One is private equity. Believe it or not, private equity is normally backed by a lot of big institutional investors, big pension funds, big insurance companies, and they are asking their GPs, so the private equity firms, a lot of questions. And so the private equity firm looks at a portfolio of two hundred, three hundred companies, and says, at the moment. I track cash and I track the P&L and I track the, the balance sheet and I track uh, intangible assets. I now need to understand the ESG performance of my, of my companies. And actually, the private equity industry has done quite a good job in, in creating what, what they call the ESG data convergence project to align on a, on a set of standards that the private equity thinks, industry thinks is actually the, the core, which is a much more condensed data set of 30, 40 metrics they have agreed on large to look at. The second capital provider, which I think is even more important, are banks. Everybody has a bank. Most people have a loan. And suddenly banks say, actually, if I need to do my regulatory compliance and if I need to be a good risk manager and if I actually need to think about the long-term profile of my, of my lending portfolio and how companies will move through this, I need to collect a lot of information that I currently don't have. Um, that's things like how are you dealing with climate change? How are you addressing human rights concerns? In the UK, we have something called the Modern Slavery Act. So as a bank, you need to evidence that you understand whether across your client base, people are using modern slavery. So a, a very strong S topic. Um, and so suddenly, if you're a bank, you have probably 90% of your portfolio in private assets, private companies, and you need to start to ask these questions. So suddenly the treasurer, the head of investor relations, the CFO would be confronted with these kind of questions in their annual credit review. Yeah, very interesting. That's exactly the trend we're seeing here. This is becoming more and more involved with, uh, CFO is becoming far, far more involved. Um, yeah. We're finding some company secretaries, COSECs are coming into the into the room so completely um, so i i guess if you sort of look back and you were obviously making forward-looking sort of um predictions into the future in your in your previous role the point that we're at in time you know, and and i guess also we can put this into different jurisdictions but are we where you expected us to be um, around this subject matter and sustainable finance? Are we behind or do you feel like we're in front and it's, it's getting momentum? Well, it's a, it's a super, super important question. I, I think we're at a, at a remarkable point in some way. I mean, this is a very young movement and what I think the world and the global community, the commercial community and beyond have, have achieved over the last really 10 years is astonishing. Right? This is now a topic that is in every boardroom, um, that is in every regulatory discussion, every governance discussion, and that's quite remarkable. Um, at the same time, I think we're at a very critical point because there obviously is all the attention. You mentioned the, the wokeness discussion. Um, 
on the climate topic in particular, there's a lot of awareness that we now need to move from commitments to execution. And that happens in a time when suddenly inflation hits, the economic profile isn't as strong anymore. And I think a lot of companies say, well, actually, maybe that's an investment that isn't, that is important, but not urgent. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I, I think very important moment in time, quite remarkable where we are, but it's now sort of the, you need to, the conviction that this remains top of mind for everyone, for, for all of your stakeholders. And I think it needs a lot of leadership now within companies to actually make sure this remains not the topic at the end of the agenda, but, but somewhere towards the, the, the top. We're seeing in the market here increasing discussions, you know, not, not so much about the word ESG. I think people have moved beyond that, particularly as they sort of get more educated on non-financial reporting. I still haven't found a better acronym, so let me know if you found one that kind of replaces ESG or whether we think we need to replace ESG, but it is ultimately non-financial accounting that we're talking about yeah. in these data sets. Um, one of the applications for this data set, um, and you take the markets that we work in, natural resources, energy, and infrastructure. Um, they're talking in, uh, increasingly about um, commodity bifurcation. I don't know if that's a, a word that you're seeing pop up in, in your sphere, but you know we're talking it... about very vanilla um, commodity-driven businesses that ultimately have had very little control over price globally. Yeah. Um, they've really been very cost-focused. You know, that's that's the piece that they've built yeah. there competitive advantage, um, but we're seeing the divergence or um, shift in those markets um, where there are other attributes beyond the specification of the commodity the, you know, the, uh, and, um, and the price yeah. um, starting to creep in. Interesting. Yeah, I, I could certainly see that across many, many industries, right? Because I mean, I'm, I'm German. The German economy is a is a car car economy, right? And if 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 many of your big manufacturers suddenly said that they want ninety percent of the steel that they source to be green steel, well, oh my God, right? Have, that's not an easy <laughs> easy task. And so suddenly you put a new attribute on on steel, which is an absolute commodity in the market. I can see how that especially hits an economy like like Australia, and obviously on on ESG. I mean, my company is called ESG Book. I do hope that the, the acronym stays. Otherwise, I do have a I do have a brand problem. <laughs> well, you know, you and I are both in the same boat with ESG yeah. plus F. I don't think bifurcation plus F or, or anything else has the same uh, sounding. Yeah, absolutely right. Here. So, Daniel, sort of, we're coming to the end here, but um, one one of the areas I did I wanted to hear more about. I uh, understand that you, you know you're involved outside of ESG Book, but in, involved in a number of sort of committees and. Um, panels and um, I think one of them, if I'm correct, Institute of International Finance, and you're on a climate risk working group, or, or have been as part of the Bank of yeah. England. Can you expand expand on some of those roles and, um, and and what that involves? I would say normally it is about two things. It is helping regulators move towards harmonisation. Because the worst thing that can happen to all of us is a very fragmented regulatory landscape. Because to my earlier point, as an economist, I want consistent signals. And the second one is to help the people affected by regulation how to apply it. Right? Those are the two big topics that I think all of these working groups are looking to solve. How do you engage with a very fragmented regulatory community to bring this down to a global standard? Then how do you translate this into something that doesn't look like 500 pages of PDF, but actually guidance that breaks down the time it normally takes between a regulation hitting the market and it actually becoming reality? That's that's what we'll be doing in all of these all of these working groups, and I think that's that's really important because I think we all know we don't really have time um, to go through a number of of iterations of of hundreds of different standards coming out and then boiling it down to the, the global baseline. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. Well, I, I guess the, the, the final thing here today is, you know, we're now, um, I guess we're, we're announcing this, but we're, we're now partners with ESG Book. I'm very, very pleased to be part of that ecosystem. 
um, for companies down here, you know, obviously we're, we're bringing um, what has been a very effective in the European US markets, hopefully bringing into the, into the Australia, Australasia and, and wider um, Asia region. Um, you know, for companies that are looking at that, they're thinking about some of these issues, the investment managers, um, you know, obviously they can talk to ESG book, um, but also in terms of the time zone, ESG plus F is down here. And we can certainly, and one of the things that we um, are enjoying working with ESG book on is getting over the wall in these organizations, helping de-bottleneck some of that unstructured data and actually get it put to work. No, fantastic. We, we love that partnership because we know that what we do needs translation into local markets and into companies. And I think we have a, we have a long, long journey ahead of us. So thank you, Oli, for, for having me. And uh, there's a lot more to come. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Daniel. Um, today's been great. And hopefully the, the least listeners have you know, gained a bit of an insight, particularly, particularly how the capital markets are now starting to unpack this information. Um, really thank you for your time. And uh, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll get you back on here. Um, in six to, to 12 months and see if the industry's taken a giant leap or whether we have um, sitting at this altitude for, for a little bit longer until it, until it gets traction. Looking Looking forward. Thank you, Oli. Okay. Thanks so much, Daniel. Take care. Well, that's the end to today's episode. And I'd like to express my gratitude to Daniel for joining us from London. We hope you enjoyed this episode and perhaps inspired you to think about how you will be activating your ESG data in the future. Before we sign off, I'd like to extend an invitation to all our listeners. If you're eager to delve deeper into the world of ESG or are seeking guidance on unlocking the plus F for your organization, we at ESG plus F are here to assist. Please feel free to visit our website, www.esg-f.com and book a one-on-one -on -one session with our team today. Thank you for tuning in and we eagerly anticipate your company on our next episode.